shirt or, or that blouse. Is it blouse or blouse? Blouse, blouse, blouse. But you know, that shirt that you just, it sits in the closet by itself, you know? I mean, you, you leave it separated all on its own. It's that special, nice, favorite shirt. Or, or maybe that Hall & Oates concert t-shirt that you got in 1982, you know, the one that you hand wash because you're afraid it's going to wear out and, and John's mustache is just going to disappear. So you, you take care of that shirt. It's your special shirt. We all have a favorite shirt. I have a favorite shirt or used to have a favorite shirt. I may have told you about my favorite shirt too. I don't remember, but it, but it was red. It was a red shirt. It was made by the Gantt Company and it came in their Salty Dog collection. So I had a little Salty Dog shirt. I think I got it maybe in the 10th grade. I can't remember. I think it was the 10th grade. And that shirt, I wore it all the time. It never lost its form or color. I mean, it was amazing. It just, it just always just produced. It was a great shirt. So 10th, 11th, uh, 12th grade, um, on into college. Freshman year, still that shirt's going strong. No problem with it. Sophomore year, I go out on a first date, and I wear that shirt. It's great. So we're sitting there, and we're... You know, having the loaded nachos at Applebee's and somewhere in the middle of all those chips, she said, you know, I've never been out with a guy who wore a hot pink shirt. To which I chuckled and said, no, this is a red shirt. To which she said, no, that is a hot pink shirt. I grabbed another chip and I said, well, I'm not your average guy. I didn't say that, but man, it'd have been cool if I did, right? I, I remember that moment, though. I was thinking, oh, no. Like, I, I just immediately started calling my, my three best friends from high school and my mom. Hey, wh- why did y'all tell me I was wearing a pink shirt? You know, no one told me that. I thought it was red. And they were like, oh, well, we just thought you knew. I didn't. I got some shade problems. always have. Found that out at the eye doctor years ago. So I know the, the light is red and green and yellow. I got that. But, you know, Stephen's shirt might be red and it could be pink. I don't know. You know, I, I just, I struggle. I struggle. I thought I was wearing one thing, but I was wearing something completely different. And, you know, just didn't realize it. So today, what we're going to do is, is try to unpack a little something for our hearts and our minds. And we'll start this way. What are you wearing these days? What are you wearing these days? Now, I'm not talking about the the physical clothes you're wearing. I'm talking about the attitude of your heart and mind. Where's your heart today? Where's your mind today? Where are your thoughts today? Are your thoughts more like red and angry? Are they more pink and cheerful? You know, where, where are you today and why does it matter? Why does it matter what you are wearing? Well, we're going to look at some wardrobe advice today. And what you wear, it matters, not just for the people who will see you. It matters for your own heart. What you wear matters. We might even put it this way. If you want to pursue greatness in life, what should you wear? If you want to pursue greatness, what should you wear? Let's see if we can find out. We're looking at Colossians 3, verse 12. Apostle Paul is going to help us think, and he begins by saying this. So as those who have been chosen of God, if you are a Christian, you have been uniquely rescued by God. What does it mean to be uniquely rescued by God? Well, one of the best pictures we have of this is 
3,500 years ago in the history of the people of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7 says this, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So why were they chosen? Deuteronomy 7, 8. But because the Lord loved you. Are you a Christian? If so, what do you have in common with Hebrew slaves from 3,500 years ago? Here's what you have in common. You are dearly loved by God. If you're a follower of Jesus, today, no matter what's happening in your life, no matter what's happening with your health, no matter what's happening with your family or your friends at work or school or in this country, you are dearly loved by God. The picture that we have from 3,500 years ago gives us Four amazing words. The Lord loved you. The Lord loved you. Don't ever let those words escape your attention. Don't let them escape your attention this afternoon. If you ignore the rest of the sermon, that's fine. Get those words. The Lord loved you. Those four words will never change. But there's four other words in that passage that I read that that as Christians, sometimes Christians get a, little, get a little off with them, get a little afraid of those words, get a little angry about those words. And those four words are what? God has chosen you. Those are words that were used by the prophets of the Old Testament. Those are words that were used by the disciples and the apostles of the New Testament. Those were words used by the Lord Jesus himself. And that is the communication from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the great I am. He uses these words on purpose. So as Christians, we should not be afraid and we should not be angry on words that we feel uncomfortable with or maybe we not don't even understand. It's okay. What should we do when we read God's word as believers? Well, we'll get advice on that from Deuteronomy as well. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2 You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor shall you take away from that word, but you will keep it, so that you can keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. We don't add and we don't take away. We say, here's what the Bible says. And we embrace it and we run with it. And I believe with all of my heart, that the reason that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, that Paul told Christians that we were chosen is so that we get the next words. That we get the next three words and that the next three words would overwhelm us. So what are those next three words? Holy and beloved. Dear Christian, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, You are holy and beloved by God. You are dearly loved by God. My guess is somebody this week didn't dearly love you. Somebody accused you of something. Somebody complained about something you did. Somebody criticized you. Somebody ignored you. Something 
happen from someone in your life. But I want you to know that it is impossible when you are in Christ to not be holy and beloved by God. The word holy there means to to separate or be set apart. And so the picture that Paul gives us is that God has chosen us, He's saved us, He's set us apart, He's made us holy so that we would look different from the world. Jesus said, what? We're the light of the world. We're we're supposed to shine a light into the darkness of the world. We have been set apart to be a light. And what makes us set apart? We're beloved. We're dearly loved. That's what sets us apart. It's why on any given moment, no matter what's happening in our life, we can step back and we can preach to ourselves for just a moment, I am holy and beloved by God because of the blood of Jesus. Paul was warning those folks in Colossians, wanting us to hear that in our moment when we feel down and discouraged, we are holy and beloved. We are dearly loved by God. So what does that mean? What does that look like in real life? We, we have these big, huge theological concepts. How, how can we take those and run with those a little bit in the, in the moment of life on earth? Years ago, I, I knew a young couple. They had just had a, a little baby girl. She was two pounds when she was born. Tiny, tiny, tiny. So she had to stay in the neonatal unit for about the first two months of her life. She was hooked up to a lot of machines, Her parents could not go and and hold her. But I want you to imagine, if you will, that mom every day going to the hospital, walking in, getting on the elevator, going upstairs to that neonatal unit, standing outside of that glass probably all day long, and I want you to see her face. What do you see on her face? What you would see is just a little glimpse of what it means to be dearly loved. See, God, when He saves and rescues, He sets us apart. And He holds our heart in His hands. And He lets us know, in that moment, through Jesus Christ, you are dearly loved by me. I have set you apart with my love. Nothing can change that love. Nothing can change that love. You know, if you're grilling out or going to the lake or or hanging out at the pool tomorrow, you may not feel like you need to feel being dearly loved by God. When we're comfortable, when we're hanging out, when, when life is entertaining, we usually don't need to feel being dearly loved by God. We we tend to kind of ignore it. But when you're in the hospital, when you're on the elevator, and you're going up, and you, you haven't really seen or heard exactly what's happening with your mom. You just know the ambulance took her there. You just know that they're working on her heart. When you're going up in that elevator and you're not sure what's going on, you know what's really nice is being able to stand in the elevator and know that you're going to stand up in front of a bunch of people on the next day and say, I am dearly loved by God. See, in the elevator, in the hospital, 
at the funeral home in the argument when your child grabs the keys and runs out of the house, in those moments, when life falls apart, when we're stressed, when we're anxious, it's good to know that we are holy and beloved by God. Not just Bible verses. Not just sermon words. But when God rescues us, He sets us apart. He makes us holy so that we will know we are dearly here's the thing. Being loved like that, you don't just put it up on the shelf. You don't leave it in the elevator. You don't leave it in the pew. Being loved like that does something. Isaac Watts in the old hymn, he says it this way, it demands our life, our soul, our all. It demands more than just a little bit of time on Sunday morning. It demands more than just some devotional time. It demands all that we are because we are dearly loved by the one true God of the universe. It demands our life, our soul, our all. Being chosen and saved and rescued by God, it compels us to change our lives and to do something very specific. What is that very specific thing? Paul goes on in verse 12. He says, put on a heart. And when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about who you actually are. Not just the, the physical organ beating in your, in your body, but, but who you really are. Who you are when no one else is looking. And Paul says, put on a heart. Well, how do you put on a heart? Well, this is where he's talking about what you wear. Now, not what you wear like your physical clothes. Not like a hot pink shirt. No, we're talking about a different kind of wear here. He's talking about what your heart wears. What is your heart wearing these days? And, and why does it matter? Well, Paul's going to give us some wardrobe advice. He's going to give us a few things to, to try on, so to speak. And the first thing he's going to let us try on, he says in verse 12, is to put on a heart of compassion. Compassion means to show mercy. It means to, to show sympathy. In ancient times, in the time of Paul, in the time of Jesus, if you were sick... If you were a child, if you were an older person, if you were weak, uh, if you were on the margins, you know, if you were strange, if you were different, if you were unlike the norm, you were a castaway, you were ignored, you were discarded, so to speak. So Paul is calling the church, not the government. Paul is calling the church, not the school system. Paul is calling the church, not the hospital. Paul's calling the church, not A-list celebrities. Paul's calling the church, he's calling believers, he's calling followers of Jesus to be the people who show compassion to those on the margins. He's calling Christians to be the one that breaks through the darkness in their world and shows compassion and sympathy and mercy to those who have been cast away. Meeting on Sunday morning, having activities for youth and kids and senior adults and others, that's not enough if we're going to follow Jesus. We have to leave this campus. We have to go away, and we have to go away with compassion, and we have to come with compassion. We have to bring mercy and bring sympathy, and we have to go and give mercy and give sympathy. Because guess what? Sometimes when you show up on Sunday morning, everybody who's sitting around you argued with their spouse on the way to church. Okay? It happened today probably in this room. <laughs> and sometimes when you come to church on Sunday morning, everything's not going to be right. Something's going to be out of place. 
Maybe it's just going to be your hair is going to be out of place, but, but something's going to be wrong. Something's not going to be going right. So I need your mercy and you need my mercy. I need your sympathy and your compassion and you need my mercy and my sympathy and my compassion. So we do it here, but we do it here to take it there. We put on a heart of compassion. We show mercy. The math is not tricky. Jesus has not called us to talk about him and ignore people's basic needs, right? It's like a a video I saw years ago where a guy was riding the road and he tied tracks to rocks and he would throw them out the window at hitchhikers. (laughs) That's not what we've been called to do, okay? We haven't been called to talk about Jesus and ignore people's basic needs, nor have we been called to meet basic needs and not talk about Jesus. It's both and. Matthew chapter 9, we have this moment in Jesus' life where he's out, he's teaching, he's preaching in the church and outside of the church, he's, he's healing people. And in Matthew 9, 36, it says this, Jesus, seeing the people, felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Our world is distressed and dispirited. Many of us are distressed and dispirited. And so we have this answer to respond to the the calling that we have been called to. And that is a call to compassion. It is a call to mercy. It's a call to sympathy. So how are we doing in 2021 as believers with being the people that are the most compassionate, merciful, sympathetic people that people bump into. How are we doing at that? Or are people bumping in to people who are constantly distressed and dispirited just like them? Look, we're going to have our moments. I mean, I've had plenty this week. But I'm so thankful for the gospel. I'm so thankful that we can put on a heart of compassion. I'm so thankful for other believers that have the mercy when I don't have the mercy or have the compassion when I don't have the compassion. And likewise, when you don't have it, I'll have it. It's the beauty of the body. Paul says we need to put on a heart of compassion. We need to wear the clothes of compassion. Next, he says we need to put on kindness. Now, kindness is similar to compassion. Compassion is kind of an attitude. Kindness is kind of the action. And and if I'm honest for all of us, we're not prone to kindness. (laughs) Sorry, we're just not. We, We are prone to kind of want things to be the way we want them to be. That's how all of us are. We're prone for things to be according to our schedule. We're prone for things to be like we left them yesterday. We're we're prone for things to be like we want them to be tomorrow. And so when we're so prone to wanting what we want, we're not so prone to kindness. But the gospel, because of Jesus Christ, has called us to put on kindness. And what should be our fuel? Because, again, we'll fight it a little. But what should be our fuel for putting on kindness? Paul was writing to the folks at Rome. In Romans 4, he said this, The kindness of God leads you to repentance. let's, Let's personalize this, okay? The pastor does not lead you to repentance. Your parents do not lead you to repentance. Your grandparents do not lead you to repentance. The kindness 
of God leads you to repentance, leads you to see your need for Jesus and to respond. And so because God has been so kind, because God saves, because God, because God forgives, and don't forget who he's saving and forgiving. People who hate his ways, people who are rebellious against his ways, people like me and people like you, God saves, God forgives, God rescues. And because God does, because he showed us kindness, we should show kindness. We should be kind to the down and outers and the up and outers. We should show kindness because we have been shown kindness. Paul says you need to wear compassion. You need to wear kindness. Next he says in verse 12, you need to put on humility. The ancient world hated humility. They hated it. They saw it as weakness. If you're going to get ahead in life, they didn't want to hear anything about humility. Their mantra was no different than the mantra we hear from some of the most important people in the world today. If you want to do something with your life, then you need to believe in yourself. You can do anything if you believe in yourself. But advice is empty. It's, it's hollow. See, the most successful person who's ever lived, and the reason I say most successful is because he was crucified, he died, he was buried, he rose from the dead, and he's still alive. See, somebody may have a story about rising from the grave, but eventually they're going to die. So Jesus is the most successful person that's ever lived because he has conquered death once and for all. And so when it comes to success, when it comes to greatness, Jesus has a bit of a different picture to give us. Paul said it this way to the Philippians, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay, so if you're looking for what you need to do, be like Jesus. And this is how he described it. And Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you could be free. Jesus humbled himself so that you could be free. Greatness, the example of greatness that Jesus has set is to empty yourself and to fill yourself up with God. To take off the clothes of arrogance and to put on the clothes of humility. That is greatness. Jesus humbled himself. He showed compassion and mercy and sympathy and kindness to people who were on the margins to people who didn't vote like him, to people who didn't live in his neighborhood, people that didn't go to church. Jesus humbled himself, and he showed compassion and mercy and kindness to those people. And he wasn't just a good neighbor. Sometimes we stop there. Jesus wasn't just a nice guy who did nice things for people. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus died to rescue people from sin. Jesus died 
to rescue people from the margins, to rescue people who didn't grow up in his neighborhood, but also to rescue people who did grow up in his neighborhood. Jesus died to rescue people who grew up in church and people who didn't grow up in church. Jesus died to rescue people who believe in God and people who do not believe in God. Jesus humbled himself to rescue anyone who would come to him. Jesus was humble. He wasn't weak. He is the Savior of the world. So we follow his lead. And look, I just want you to know, pick, pick the person right now in your life. Pick the athlete. Pick the politician. Uh, pick the preacher, for that matter. Pick, pick whoever it is, whoever your hero is in life. And I promise you, whoever that person is, probably isn't living up very well to this calling. See, we're weak. We're not strong. We don't always humble ourselves. So it's not wrong to have people to look up to. By all means, we need leaders and we need mentors. But first and most, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Jesus has called us to empty ourselves, to humble ourselves, and to serve others. Put on compassion. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Be strong. That's humility. Humility is strength. As believers, we're called to be strong. Compassion, kindness, Humility. Next, Paul says in verse 12, put on gentleness. The heart of a Christian is supposed to be gentle and meek. In other words, when we're being wronged, when a situation is not happening the way we want it to happen, we should be willing to be gentle, to not easily be hurt, and to trust in the Lord. A sense of, of gentleness means that that we're okay in that moment of being wrong. That we don't lose our mind in that moment of being wrong. Look, I'm sorry, they're out of Chick-fil-A sauce. Just hang in there, okay? You'll be all right. You know, we find ourselves in these moments where we want something and we don't have it and we can't be gentle anymore, you know? We've got to have that sauce, come on. But the gospel calls us to be gentle, to be meek. Now again, the word meek in our culture sounds like weak, but it's not. The Bible said that Moses was the meekest man on the earth. Listen to this description. Moses was the most meek man on earth, but at the same time, Moses was a man who could act decisively. And I love this. He could be as hard as nails. Meaning there are moments sometimes you put your foot down you can still do it with gentleness. Moses could be hard as nails. He could rise to anger at the proper time. Those who are gentle and meek are immensely powerful people because they are controlled by God. Let me ask you a question, dads. Do you want to be strong for your family? Then be gentle and meek. Most of us men don't hear that, but we should. If you want to be strong for your family, be gentle and meek. Because being gentle and meek means you're being controlled 
by God. God is having his sway over your heart and mind. Paul says to put on gentleness. I might even add this. Do you want to be helpful to our country right now? Do you want to be helpful to our community right now? Do you want to be helpful to the world right now? Then put on gentleness. You know why? Because it seems like nobody else is going (laughs) to. So why don't we be the ones to follow Jesus and put on gentleness? Paul gives us one more thing to wear here in verse 12. Thankfully, it's the easiest that he has in this list. Verse 12, Paul says, put on patience. Yeah, I was being sarcastic in case you didn't catch that. That's, that's not the easiest one. It's the hardest one, right? That's the one we want to leave in the closet, right? Just, just stay in there. I'm not wearing that today. Not putting on any patience. Why? Why is it so hard for us to put on patience? Here's why. Because something's already gone wrong in your life today. Someone's already ticked you off. You were already upset about something today, okay? More than likely. Because someone's going to cut you off in traffic this afternoon. Because when you get to the restaurant this afternoon, they're going to be out of something. You know, maybe exactly what you decided to order. You know, or the people next to you, their kids are going to be loud. You know, and they're going to leave food all over the floor. You know, I mean, something's going to go wrong today. Maybe this week, you know, your your boss is going to give you a hard time about something. Maybe this week, your wife is going to nag you. Maybe this week, your husband is going to once again not do what you've been asking him to do. Your kids are going to do the opposite of everything that you asked them to do. See, we're going to have tons of moments in life where things don't go our way. So now, in this moment, in this second, it's good for us to remind ourselves, I need to put on patience. I need to put on patience. And why should we do that? Let me read you the whole verse of what Paul told us earlier. Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Today, this afternoon, this week, when you feel like you're about to bust with impatience, all right? When that moment comes, when you feel like you're about to lose your mind over something or with someone, in that moment, what can you do? Here's what you can do. You can preach to your heart and mind, oh yeah, I am holy and beloved. I am dearly loved by God. The kindness of God. It's not light riches, it's great riches. The kindness of God has led me to repentance. So I can put on patience right now because God has been so patient. Leonardo da Vinci said this about patience. This is so fun. Patience serves as a protection against wrongs as clothes do against cold. Simple math. For if you put on more clothes as the cold increases, it will have no power to hurt you. All right, I have to interject just a pointless comment from the first year of my marriage. So I'm hot-natured. My wife is cold-natured. We get to our first apartment in seminary. We've been married, I guess, three or four months. Our ceilings were like 25-foot ceilings. I mean, they were so tall. And so our apartment was crazy hot. So pulling a line from Steve Martin and, and Father of the Bride, I was just, or maybe it was Nina, I can't remember, one of them, Father of the Bride. I said, look, baby, we don't have expensive cars. You don't wear fancy jewelry. 
but we're going to run that air conditioner, all right? That's, that's what's going to happen, you know. I said, because you can put on more clothes, but there's only so much I can take off, all right? So we're going to have to use the air conditioner. I mean, da Vinci is simple, right? If you put on more clothes as the cold increases, it will have no power to hurt you. So in like manner, you must grow in patience when you meet great wrongs, and then those great wrongs will be powerless to irritate your mind. Ah, I so want to learn this. Listen to the last part again. So when the wrongs come, they will be powerless to irritate your mind. If you're putting on patience, if you're putting on patience, if you're telling your heart you are dearly loved, the kindness of God has found you. Put on patience. Put on a heart of compassion, of kindness, of humility, of gentleness, of patience. These are the pictures that Paul gives us. It's our our first quick fitting here of our new wardrobe, the spiritual clothing that we should be wearing. But it's easier said than done, right? I mean, come on. Still having to deal with the pandemic. It's kind of hard to put that stuff on. I mean, the the government seems out of whack. It's kind of hard to put that stuff on. I I got health issues. It's kind of hard to put that stuff on. Got things going on with my family and friends. There's there's tragedy that's come this week. It's kind of hard to, to put those things on. All the more reason to put those things on. It's hard to wear those clothes right now, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. It's a day where we stop and we remember the men and women who gave their lives for us. To gave, they gave their lives to preserve freedoms that we have today, the freedom of just being here in this room. And if we're honest, far too often we take those things for granted. We don't mean to, we just do. Those men and women looked at the world around them in distress and dispirited, and they decided to change clothes. They put something else on, and not just a uniform, but they put on an attitude of humility and service. It's the pattern that they set. 36 years ago, speaking in Arlington National Cemetery, President Ronald Reagan made a very interesting comment about those that we remember this weekend. He said this, It is, in a way, an odd thing to honor those who died in defense of our country. The imagination plays a trick. We see these soldiers in our mind as old and wise. We see them as something like the founding fathers, grave and gray-haired. But most of them were boys when they died. And they gave up two lives the one they were living, and the one they would have lived. When they died, they gave up their chance to be husbands and fathers and grandfathers. They gave up their chance to be revered old men. They gave up everything for our country and for us. They gave up two lives. Which life do you need to give up today? Is there a life where you're refusing to follow God and refusing to serve others? Do you need to put a a new uniform on? Do you need to follow the pattern of, of those that we remember this weekend and look for ways to serve? 
in a world that is distressed and dispirited, how much good will we do yelling with the crowd? But if we were to put on compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience, we would impact the world. Why? Because God told us to. And because God said he would work through those things. He did not say he would work through us yelling and criticizing on social media. He never said that. But he did say that just like he did through his son, he can change the world through us putting on things that feel odd, but they are full of the glory of God. So what are you wearing these days? What are you wearing these days? There's a story told years ago about a Christian named Yakov. Yakov was in a village in Yugoslavia, and he would go to that village every week, and he ended up bumping into this one man named Simmerman. And he began to talk to Simmerman about Jesus. Simmerman was an old man, and he didn't want to have anything to do with it. He told Yakov, look, I don't want to hear anything about your Jesus, because here's what I know about your Jesus. What I know about your Jesus is the churches in my village have always been proud and arrogant country clubs. That's what they are. And I need time for your Jesus because the churches in our community, they walk around with their fancy clothes and and their fancy crosses. They pretend that they have some commission from God. But what we have seen is them actually torture our community. We've seen the church take innocent lives. And then Zimmerman said this, in fact, it was the Christian church in my village that killed my nephew. See, I got no time for your Jesus because the history of your Jesus in my village is something I don't want anything to do. Yakov responded and said this, Simmerman, suppose I were to steal your coat, put it on and bring it and go and break into a bank. And the police sighted me running in the distance, but they couldn't catch up with me. But here was the one clue they had. The one thing that put them on the track, they recognized your coat. What if they came to your house, knocked on the door, and accused you of robbing the bank? Simmerman said, well, it wouldn't be true. I tell him, man, it wasn't my coat. It has nothing to do with me. And he was so angry about the conversation that he just told Yakov to leave, just get out. So Yakov left, but he came back over and over again. He would go and he would visit the Simmerman. And he would talk to him about Jesus. And one day, after a long, long, long time, Simmerman said, hey, what do I need to do to be a Christian. Yakov told him about what it meant to repent, what it meant to turn his life over to Jesus. Zimmerman got saved, and this is what he said to Yakov. He said, thank you for being in my life. You wear his coat very well. We have the gospel. We have the kindness 
of God that's led us to repentance. We have the greatest coat in the universe. Let us put on 